Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, January 18th, and this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things writing and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Madison Moore. I'm Kelsey Hoff. I'm Carl Rollman. Today on the show, our interview with the award-winning poet, Rich Lyons. Richard Lyons has taught literature and creative writing for more than two decades at Mississippi State University. Lyons is a former winner of the Discovery Award from The Nation and the 92nd Street YHMA in New York City and the LaVon Younger Poets Prize from the Chancellors of the Academy of American Poets in New York City. His collections of poetry include The Modern Nights, Hours of the Cardinal, Fleur Carnivore, and in 2016, Un Poco Loco. Born in Boston, he hails from the Mid-South where he lives with his wife and his cats. Of his work, poet Nancy Eimers has written, Richard Lyons listens with his memory and his eyes, with all his heart, and with every word to what we might mistakenly think of as small or bygone things. He sorrows and joys in the passing glimpse and in our changing mortal perceptions, blackbirds that fall like black handkerchiefs. A neighbor's outdoor mobile of rusty forks and spoons Time lost and gone, the one-time horn and piano riffs consisting both artist and audience so dearly all bets are off except to go forward, to start from scratch, to cherish, to live. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing okay. Great in papers, but I'd rather talk to you guys. (laughs) That's great. Um, The first question I have is about the first poem in the book. And mm-hmm. the the quotation that you start off with, and I'm wondering, um, were there other reasons behind formatting the Klee quote at the beginning of I Begin as part of the poem instead of an epigraph, besides enacting the chaos of beginnings described in the quote? Um, reasons for doing that? I, I have a lot of epigraphs, so I guess I was just trying to cut down on the amount of uh, academic-looking stuff in the poem. Plus, I, I love the quote. It's it's pretty bizarre and allows for the the danger and the bulkiness of the world and how it hassles us. So um, if you look at my poems, they're pretty long and, and talky and body and body in both senses, B-O-D-Y and B-A-W-D-Y. So, yes. <laughs> um, and it also has a way of rushing you into the manuscript and the uh, I'd have to say caffeine is my my main fault in my life. It's probably <laughs> going to kill me. So, um, but I always advocate it for my students. All right, thank you. My second question is: Your poems seem to be about everything and nothing at the same time, using mm-hmm. images and details to fill in a larger idea. How do you maintain a focus or scope with subject matter that seems so nebulous? Is it's kind of a multiple part question. So I guess you can answer the. <laughs> I yeah, I, I, I had a colleague ask me what my music theory was since I write about music, and I said, um, I guess I could refer to Charles Mingus's large bands of the 60s, and, and the, his sense of it was a, was trying to get as much emotion and as much experience, high and low, um, into a poem, um, I guess the uh, less than dignified things we do as human beings and the hopefully good things we do for other people and and also sometimes taking uh, our leaders to bear on uh, political things but I usually do it by the back door mm. um, sometimes 
right out in the open. Right. Uh, because I do think all poetry is political, but I think it has to be poetry first. Um, that's what I always advocate with my students. Uh, I don't want the thesis to determine the poem. I think poems are supposed to discover what they're about as they go. Um, I guess with postmodern poetry, I don't really worry about unity, which is maybe a fault, but I'm willing to live with that mm -hmm. um, for to reach a, I don't know, a more um, expansive vision than I might if I had a theme that I was sticking to, like in your essays in class. Um, and I and when I teach literature, I do just the opposite. I say you've got to be focused, topic, sentences, thesis, all of that. Um, I taught my younger brothers how to survive in engineering school because they don't like to read and write. Um, and I'm I'm good, pretty good at passing on to non-writers the uh, the virtues of being a decent writer, even if you're not in the in uh, English. Very interesting. Well, and and I think. When your poems are more overtly political or more overtly style-driven, that makes for bad poetry. I think so, too. Because <clears throat> if you're talking about like one very certain focused topic, especially if it's something political like that, <clears throat> and, excuse me, please, it can come off as being perhaps like closed-minded and less open for interpretation. And I think that that's really beautiful about poetry. Well, I've got that long poem that I have an audio version of on a droid journal that was one of the last poems that was published in a magazine, and I asked the editor to include it because it it is openly political, but the way I get around that is to create the fiction of certain figures coming back from the dead. Mm -hmm. I think the poem's called Talk About Crazy, and it talks about LBJ and... And it's, and it's also easier to be critical if you're looking at the past as opposed to the present. Uh, I must say, LBJ is looking like a, a saint at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. In history, um, of course, I took the fam I took a riff on the famous picture of him after he got out of the White House, and he had huge ears and long hippie hair. And, mm. and during the Vietnam War, he was considered a pretty militant Democrat at the time. But like I said, he's like comparatively like Mother Teresa. Yeah. Um, well, talk about crazy is you know, on 42, and it's just, the reading takes seven minutes, so it's too long. But it is openly political about, well, eh, the way macho stuff ruins everything, ruins relationships between women and men and, and between countries. Uh, I think that that... We can't, as writers, back away from that, even if we'll be called sad and overrated. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know who I'm quoting, of course. <laughs> I'll be like Meryl Streep, and I won't say his name. <laughs> My sort of branch-off question from that was, is improvisation a part of your writing process, which we did talk about music a little bit, and if so, do you go back and revise lines that you have improvised, or do you have like a set um, practical way that you... Um... Well, it's interesting you ask that, because there's a poem in the book called Granite from Sugarwater, and it's about Polonius Monk's piano playing. And the critic I took that line from was talking about 
improvisation that sounds like it went perfect the first time. Mm -hmm. So as a poet who thinks of himself as not a spoken word poet, um, my poems, they improvise, but when they're done, they shouldn't, they shouldn't look like it's accidental. And so that is a specific question I'm bringing up in the poem is that, um, Thelonious Monk was, was so good and so ahead of his time that he, you'd say, oh, that's brand new, but man, didn't he have to revise that? Maybe he did in his, in the panel that took up his whole apartment in New York, but on stage, it comes off as if it's perfect, and who knows whether it is or not. I'm not a good enough musician to say. Um, <laughs> not a musician at all. So, in the end of that poem, it has the image of a, of a fish trying to stay still in a strong current. So I guess that would be time and death taking on the poet or the musician. And, and we're trying to make form, but form moves just the way Wallace Stevens talks about death as the mother of beauty. So if you frame a picture, a still picture, you in a sense have killed the subjects in that narrative. Mm -hmm. So when I teach Stevens, I always talk about Calder's mobiles that are at the Guggenheim, mm -hmm. these huge metal objects are hanging in space in the wind or the ac blows them around and, and in some ways that's what i want art the improvisation to feel like is that you're fighting against your own mortality and your and people's desires that are against yours etc <laughs> part of that um sort of a parallel to fiction which i taught just this semester you know, students tend to associate uh, writing in some ways with uh, some sort of d divine spirit. The muse mm -hmm. settles on into mm -hmm. your body and mm -hmm. you just kind of pump out on the road, you know. Right. But you have to have all of those jazz musicians have the skills, you know. They're, they're masters before they're improv people, you know. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. And, uh and there is a magic to writing, but it, it has more to do with routine and self-discipline and the pleasure of that. Um, oftentimes I find like somebody will publish a poem and I'll feel like it's too polished. And that happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, something that I'll be really attracted to will be, I'll be less attracted to in its published version. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Norman Doobie has a line in his forget the name of the book, but it's a book of aphorisms, and he says there's a thin line between perfecting the poem and erasing the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get, and, uh, you get that in music, too, right? I mean, there's the, mm -hmm. the super sort of raw, and mm -hmm. some of the bands that I grew up listening to, it's like that, you know, that, that comes out in record form, and it's like, wow, this is overproduced. It's ruined. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and so you do lose some of the passion and stuff, but... I think these, from compared to my younger days, the editors are looking for a, a more set piece, and I think it's declined in our in the uh, ambitiousness of editors yeah. these days. I'm not saying all of them, but some of them don't take chances yeah. on a work that might be a little bit raw. I mean, I'm all about it. They said we like this if you cut that stanza, and. Literature people always have that give and take with their editors, but creative writing is so big now that magazines just say, well, it's ready for us or it's not. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to just say, well, great. So I tell my students half the time the editors are right. And I, you know, I bite my lip and admit it, but other times I just use an expletive and send it back out. <laughs> <laughs>
right you have to you have to know what you're what you're willing to give up under your poem and what you're not yeah, willing and to it, give up and another thing is if if an editor in a good magazine said to you drop the last line i tell him drop it get it published and then put it back yeah in your <laughs> yes. book right <laughs> and you still i mean you're the you're the final author so right. it's worth it for the publish right right but a lot of times you, you will realize that they were correct because they are more objective because they don't. It's mm. not their poem. Right. I mean, we're, we as writers are more invested in the composition passion, and some of it has to be burned off. And I don't want to burn off 50% of it. I want to burn off maybe 25% of it. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be the general state of things. You know, even the publishing houses tend to be looking for a polished, finished product, the, the days mm-hmm. of the editor that's co-writing is are gone. Oh, yeah, the Ezra Pound kind of guy that liked Elliot and Frost, yeah. who are completely different. Plus, they're not crazy. Not, well, there's more, there's more manuscripts. Pound was crazy as a loon, for one thing. <laughs> he lived in Europe most of the time. Um, yeah, but there used to be, I think, probably 15 or 20 sort of major league editors and these days i mean i'm being i'm being rejected by people who are a third my age and because the big dudes don't read 300 manuscripts they yeah. read 12 manuscripts. Yeah. yeah i've got another question um going back sure. into the um the book okay each poem seems to be doing something sonically different than the one before and many are aware of times passing and that got me thinking about um the speed that they should be read so I'm wondering if Un Poco Loco should, or some of the poems should be read at a faster or slower pace, and if you think um, that all jazz poetry should be read aloud? Um, I, I know a couple of black poets who wouldn't even think of my stuff as jazz poetry. The stuff that <laughs> spoken word often looks like it's all over the page. Right. And that's a different phenomenon. It's really a theater with black culture Poetry and drama are the same thing, but in white culture it is not. Uh-huh. Um, mine's more like um, meditative poetry, which would go back to the romantics, to John Donne and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like a good performance, but I think I would try to do it with my voice and not with... I wouldn't be dancing around on stage, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, I hope my poems go, go fast and slow, like jazz does, changing pitch and stay changing tempo sometimes magazines particularly formal magazines don't want to look at these poems because they look on the page like they're not little blocks you know done done said a stanza means a room and if they don't look like neat little paragraphs some writers don't want to read that kind of poetry i love shane matheny but i can't write like him you find writers you can use and writers you respect yeah and you read them both and and I think Seamus Heaney would teach you musical uh, discipline, and somebody like Larry Levis would 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 extend your idea of what poetry can do. And his poetry is narrative, but it's it's controlled by a central voice that moves around in different episodes. And I'd say probably the closest writer that that he's probably the closest writer to what I started doing when I started getting published. So it'll be narrative for a while, and then it'll jump to another narrative, or it'll go backwards or go forwards. And yes. then the composition process is just where they get lucky. 
and you only get lucky the more you practice yeah. and the more times you take in front of the typewriter, which means you're by yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to be much more of a social butterfly, as Dean can probably tell you. <laughs> um, it's true. But I'm getting more sedentary, and probably because the bones start peaking and stuff. But um, sometimes my students, all they do is stay on the computer, and they I said, what do you do for fun? And they go, nothing. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny for a 65-year-old guy to be saying to a 20-year-old person, you need to get out more. Right. <laughs> what do they write about? That's um, not a serious question. <laughs> well, it depends on whether they're good. My students, my good students, are they sort of make myths out of their own personal experience, so it's partly confessional and partly uh, meditative or mythic. My students who end up hating my class want to just say, I love everybody or I love my father. Or, right. I tell them, you can't just write a tribute. That's for your family. That's not for a magazine. Mm-hmm. So they... If some of the younger kids have trouble saying, well, my dad's perfect, I don't want the poem to say anything else, I'm like, well, you're censoring yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's okay. I, some of them, if they resist me, I say, give this poem to your mother or father. Don't give it to a magazine. Yeah, there's a difference between um, kind of a, a buzzword that we, we have in my program is the sentimentality of, mm-hmm. of the poem. If it's getting too sentimental, then then you need to... Put some, yeah. put some more well, I, risk in I there. Quote, I quote Faulkner, and he said something like, sentimentality destroys sentiment. And, mm-hmm. and I tell the students that I want you to have sentiment, mixed sentiments. The poem should be paradoxical. That there should be feelings fighting against other feelings. And it's an uncomfortable feeling for super young writers. I'm, I'm talking about intro you know, they're sophomores and juniors, and they've never written before. I've just read, read several poems which are doing, say, affection and loss pretty well, but we don't know whether the person that they lost is worth it. Wow. Right. As a character, I, I say to them, of course your mother's great. But I don't, but you're not, <laughs> you're not recapping your mother's life. You're recapping a fictional version of a mother's life. Right. And showing details that... Uh, a reader can can kind of feel for themselves rather than taking your mm-hmm. word on it. Yeah, yeah partic- they have to. Yeah, go ahead, Dean. Well, particularly with the kind of intimate sentiment that bleeds into sentimentality, I always tell them you have to you have to earn those. Mm-hmm. And that's that's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to earn a kiss. Yeah, I sometimes use a variation on what teachers have told me for essays. It's like they'll say like you need three three legs for a stool to stand up. And so I'll say, you got two good, emo- like if, in a really early draft, you got one leg of the stool, it's not going to stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Two, it's it's going to pretend to stand up. And three, <laughs> it's going to stand up. And yeah. so they, you have to search deeper in your soul and they'll tell me what, they'll ask me, what should I write? I said, I'm not telling you what to write. It's your poem. Yeah. I'm like, I said to a kid like, Maybe you should, we did a read a dove poem about coming of age, sexual awakening. And I said, well, maybe you want to write about that, but I'm not going to make you write that. (laughs) (laughs) And the kid said, I'd probably embarrass myself if I did. And I said, yeah, in a way, it's sort of the world has had plenty of boys bragging about their sexuality. So it's a little easier for a woman to explore what used to be a taboo. And so I encourage talented women to, to... to stand up to 
jerky racism and jerky sexism, but it has to be done through the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if it ends up being a feminist poem, that's great. Adrian Rich is a great poet, but she she comes at it as the poem comes first and the message comes second. Yeah. Uh, this is actually perfect that we're kind of talking about um, the, you know, deeper roots of poetry and what you think that uh, people should be including in them. Because I wonder, um, much of your writing touches on like internal challenges and questions of the self. And I'm curious to know about whether you're driven to write about what you observe in other people or if you prefer introspection. Well, I guess I'd say I'm a melancholy writer and I'm an and I'm an introspective writer, but I'm mm-hmm. trying. Writers, even Coleridge, as introspective as he was, was trying to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, my new book has a poem called "Psalm with a Hawk's Feather," and it's been published by Upstreet. It's a pretty long. No, it's like a two-page poem, but I'd say it started. Well, I can tell you it literally is homage. It's a homage to Pablo Neruda about trying to um, trying to get real empathy, not exactly social empathy, but mm-hmm. where you can live and you can walk in somebody else's shoes. Right. There's a cobbler in the poem. There's a there's a tailor in the poem, and the character, the poem I was riffing on by Neruda is called "Walking Around," and that's literally what he's doing: is walking around the town. And so it took a long time, and a lot of magazines thought it was too much all over the place. And I just stuck with it because it ends up talking. I guess I come out of Keats in the poems that I like are poems that uh, admit they're, that they're vulnerable, that mm-hmm. your mortality makes it so that you're not the king of the world. Right. Or if you are, you're only a king of the world for five seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you say uh, that you prefer or that you tend to write um, introspectively because I find that although you are really looking inside yourself to find that kind of inspiration, um, you can relate to a lot of people just by doing that because what you know of yourself, I think that you can pretty much assume of other people, especially when it's when you're being honest with yourself about the real like nitty gritty and like how you were saying the possible bad things that we do as humans and hopefully the good things that we do too. Yeah, and, and I would say that, that when you use what you're interested in and what you read when you're not really trying to publish poems, like when I'm listening to jazz or reading about jazz, um, that's a device in a way. And I tell my students, like my Thelonious, poem, Thelonious Monk poem, granted from Sugarwater, is ultimately about what I think, mm-hmm. but it uses some of his biography to to and people writing about him to get outside of myself. Like, um, colleague has a book called The Tornado is the World, and I told him that the inner weather that Frost calls it inner weather is more important than a literal thunderstorm, I mean, a mm-hmm. literal hurricane or a tornado. And so where my colleague is using meteorology and bad weather, I'm using jazz music. Yes. There's a poem in which it has an italic section. Uh, where is the name of the title of that one? It's called... Uh, Eponymous hard bought for Horace Silver, and I. If you ever see Horace Silver, he looks like he just smoked a joint in every picture. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'll have to look and, it up. And Horace just died about six months ago. Oh. And he, uh, in my poem, I have a. I made up a scene where his trumpeter, or his sax, I can't remember. I think it's the sax player, is sick in the bathroom from from alcohol or drugs, and they have to get him back on stage. And so they're. 
it's that's that stanza is pretty theatrical because somebody tries to come in the bathroom and one of the characters says, Go away, this guy's in a bad shape and mm-hmm. the his head is against the wall and his pants are down at his ankles. Um and it's a very uh, I guess un Victorian scene. It's yeah. a <laughs> it's a pretty embarrassing scene for the guys. And that, a lot of these guys died really young or shortened their lives with heroin and other abuses. And I can't say I haven't abused some substances in my life. There you go, exactly. It kind of blurs the line between yourself and other people. And I thought it was really interesting how, I mean, you embody some of these, um, like, famous personalities who have died or um, kind of take the liberty to imagine them. And I feel like that's, um, you know, them having lived their actual lives is a little bit of a risk, kind of reimagining what they would say or do in those circumstances mm-hmm. that um, kind of is a little a little weightier than, you know, just an arbitrary fiction that you would make up. Yeah, I'm stealing, I'm stealing splicing little tiny parts of the biographies or, or feelings I had about particular songs. I had a colleague, she teaches in North Carolina, she came here to read, she, her husband's a jazz pianist, and and I had told my students I thought she was using the jazz pianist's lies as a double for herself. She said, no, I'm just telling your story, and I'm like, well, that's not what I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally using them as a mirror. Um, sure, I, I mean, I don't say I am Thelonious Monk, that's ridiculous, but um, it's the, those images and those things that got the poem started are for, the way for me to climb out of self-absorption, mm-hmm. which I hope everybody... I mean, if you write poetry, you want to be read. So um, poetry's got to be about coming out of your soul eventually. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rilke, the German poet, is super introspective, and his syntax is really difficult. But I had teachers who really loved him, and now... I heard Philip Levine at Breadloaf say, don't read Rilke's translations. He's too introspective. And I'm like, well, sorry, I'm going to do it because I like Rilke. <laughs> and I love Philip Levine. He's, but he's, a, he's a really good poet, and he can do things I can't even try to do. Uh, his new book, his posthumous book, is called The Last Shift, and it's just as good as the 20 books before. Yeah. And um, I believe... Dean and I saw him in Boston. He was still hilarious. It was yeah. about a year before he died. Yeah. He spoke with the Scottish poet laureate. I'm skipping on her name, but Levine is quite a bit older than she, and, and he went last. And he's, a, he's in the long tradition of Jewish comedians, going back to Lenny Bruce and yeah. other people like that. Um, well, we touched a little bit about this before, so we don't have to spend too much time on it, um, if you would prefer to move on. But you were talking a little bit about um, how you deal with your students, and I'm wondering, as a teacher and a creative writer, how you go about teaching technique without crossing the boundary of the poet's authenticity, because obviously poetry is a very, you know, it can be a very personal thing, and it can be very introspective, um, but it also probably has to have some technique, especially coming from a teacher. So I'm, I'm wondering how you go about that. Well, I copy edit poems like crazy, and if they're good enough, they'll stand up to me and, and, cha- and not change it. And I'm actually trying to force myself to praise more with intro students because 
The only reason you don't praise the good stuff is because you you only have a set amount of time to get the papers back to them. But in the advanced classes, usually in advanced classes, every kid wants serious criticism. Um, so I just edited it the way I would do it. And, and if I remember, I put a question mark after everything so they can say, nah, you're wrong. <laughs> right. That's good. And people do that in class. I mean, that's what a good workshop should do. It's like, I'll, I'll give my opinion and then someone... I've got some pretty feisty women in my last workshop that just said, nah, I don't agree with that. And I said, well, what do you mean? Go on, tell me why. And I'll be the first one to go, okay, you win, fine. Let's right. move on. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's important. <laughs> and I would appreciate it. I mean, I hate the fact that I'm the one that gives the grade. If you could get, if you could motivate graduate students or undergrads without grades, it would be fine. But most people have their own personal lives and, you have to sort of help people not to be lazy. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Um, you, so the grade to me is like a carrot. You just you just pull in the carrot so that the horse falls a carrot, and <laughs> and I try to get the best riding out of the students, whether they're going to be famous poets or not. Right. Yeah. And do you believe that there are rules to poetry? Because it sounds like when you edit, you are um, subjective, which is good because you've had you know plenty of practice but i'm wondering if you ever think about what the what the like general rules are for poetry if if it's not you deciding it well i try to call them guidelines but i would hope sure. being from the 60s that i would say that anything goes okay. i'm always quoting flannery o'connor who said you can get you can you can write about anything you want any way you want but it's hard to get away with it and that's her way of talking about discipline disciplining uh the work and disciplining the character uh, and actually birthing the character, especially in fiction, away from yourself, just like a kid growing up away from her, his or her parents. Yeah, I'd, I'd say this is probably a good rule of thumb, but if, you, but if you can bust through and show me I'm wrong, I'm all for it. I'd like to be a student advocate. I think my students believe. I've, I've chaired, chaired and sat on over 50 theses in 22 years here, so... Uh, I tell the undergraduates, if you want to check out my credibility, you know, you can look up the kids who did theses in the library. And they'll tell you that they became better writers by my pushing them around. <laughs> yeah, in some ways it's about, I mean, it's sort of, uh, the rules are sort of self-driven in some ways. It's like, mm -hmm. you can break them, but there are, there are going to be consequences, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. you, can, you can create a, a, a character who's a mother who's unmotherly, right? But... Mm -hmm. But if it's a minor character, you're, it's going to be a blemish. Yeah. You know, that's how it'll be read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like to say conventions rather than rules. Um, yeah, and just knowing how it's going to be received rather than looking at it as a right or wrong. or like. Yeah, and also taking those conventions from writers who maybe John Donne, as far back as John Donne, I don't think Beowulf is that useful for a poet like me. Uh, but I do think I could read Spencer or... Chaucer. I don't anymore, but I still look back at poets. I find that my younger colleagues are teaching to the anthologies and getting to know who the power brokers are these days. And that's good, too. My, my colleagues help them a lot in getting professionalized, but I guess I'll play the historian since I'm the oldest of the career writers. Um, but students, because of our schedule, don't have enough time to read, so they have to graduate and then keep going, you know. Mm. And a lot of our students get an MA and then get an MFA, mm. which is, I shouldn't say a lot, I'd say 100 out of 300 or something. 
maybe maybe even more. Thinking thinking a little bit about influence and having read when I was reading through Un Poco Loco, I noticed that you had several poems that were centered on the body or sort of fragments of the body, parts of the body. Mm-hmm. First time I sort of saw that, I thought sort of like a language-driven, exquisite corpse, but a poem like Flesh and Bone reminded mm-hmm. me of sort of Whitman, sort of the narrative style and the idea of the body. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, the way you deal with the body in, in poetry and the role of the physical? Well, it, it's really important to me. Onomatopoeia, if I say it in recommendation, somebody has an onomatopoeic impulse. That's a high praise for me because mm. I I guess I want the language to be as agile as the free world, the real world, whatever people call it. Although as you get older, that agility starts being about the lack of agility. Yeah. <laughs> Like when I talk about depicting an animal, we're talking about animal poems, and I said, you don't want a mascot. You probably don't want to write about your pets because you love them. And I tell them to forget the cliche of predator and prey, because right. there'll always be the guy who says, you know, I'm the lion and the girl at the bar is the antelope. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> um, so I've, I'm always saying you've got to know the anatomy and the athleticism of a particular animal. The same way you have to do know it about human beings because they're moving on stage. I always start with Aristotle's claim that art is the imitation of an action, and so you. And then dialogue in fiction is spoken action, but literal, what's called blocking in theater, how characters move around each other. I usually talk, use metaphors, and so you ever see two dogs meet each other or two cats meet each other? Mm-hmm. That's how humans circle around what hurts. Often for young writers, they they want it, they'll turn their poetry into an Oprah session or a Dr. Phil session where they right. give themselves therapy. And I'm saying that's the author coming into the story when he should stay out of the yeah. story. Mm-hmm. He or she should stay out. Well said. But I think that uh, the uh, series I have is in part three. It's got a mouth, yep. a thumb, and an eyebrow. I probably wrote ten or twelve of those that didn't make it. Mm. And then flesh and bone is in the prosier poems in section four. Yep. Um, for a while, I tried to write a, uh, from a sort of Henry John Berryman's, um, what do you want to call it, masks that he wears in, in dream songs. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I tell my students, Hansville and Bala came here a couple of years ago, and he, we agreed that, and he said it more, he's older than I am and more famous, so he said, I tell my students that writers are sensualists, they're not intellectuals. Yeah. So when I do the modes of fiction, I don't say the narrator's thoughts. I say the narrator's feelings, and feelings don't have any shape. Yeah. So you have to go to metaphor. You have to go to setting. You have to go to appearance, action. Looking at my early poems, I'm going to have to give a lecture on get, uh, getting commentary out of the poems because they'll give you the picture, and then they'll write the caption. I say you don't need the caption if the picture is good. Yeah. Well, kind of counterbalancing that, at least in a lot of, the minds of a lot of readers would be the, the spiritual. Although in I Sing the Body Electric, Whitman sort of fuses them. I, I know you're you're a Buddhist. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the, the spirit in poetry? Yeah, uh, my uh, new book is mostly Psalms. In fact, I've recently cut it down from 77 to 54. Maybe it'll market it better. But a psalm to me is mostly coming from a Greek poet named uh, Odysseus Elitis. First, I was reading Gerald Stern's long poems, and then 
Delighted in 1979 won the Nobel Prize. But when you read his poems, they really say the body, like the Chinese say, the body and the soul have to be both healthy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and if my students have read Song of Myself, I'll say he's dabbling, I guess, in spiritualism, but his poems are super physical. Because yeah. they, and I always start with the patient noiseless spider, where the spider has to build his or her own world from inside his body, from the filaments that he makes the net. What do you call it? Web from uh, gossamer or thread, whatever you end up calling it in a poem. Uh, web usually doesn't come off very well. I don't know why. It sort of sits on the tongue badly. Kind of another style question. Uh, Wallace Stevens has written that style is not something applied. It's something that permeates. Um, is of the nature of that uh, in which it is found, whether it's a poem, a manner of a god, the bearing of a man. It's, it's not a dress. Um, would you agree with that? I, when I teach, I mean, I don't know how to answer that question except that I don't. I find it to be a tremendously physical poet. When you're younger and you read Stevens, you think he's a, an egghead, cerebral poet. Yeah. And um, really, what it comes down to is that he's saying that you're writing a fiction or a text that's going to die, that's yeah. going to expire. And so, because um, at one point he says it's a poverty not to live in a physical world, but when kids read him, they usually think of him as a cerebral poet. Mm-hmm. So well, the way I teach it is he's trying to say that the, the physicality you create on the page is even more lush than the real world. Yeah. So the poet, in a sense, like in Whitman, has to be willing to say, I have the powers of God, which, yeah. is, which mm-hmm. is love and sympathy, as Whitman does it. and. So the apotheosis, a lot of my students are uncomfortable with that because of their upbringing, but he doesn't really say, Whitman doesn't say, I'm God. He says that if you learn sympathy from God's nature, then you'll have the empathy to write physically about Mm. other people. So my wife and I like to quote uh, Bill Murray from Groundhog Day when he's eating the donuts. He says, I'm not the God, I'm a God. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Which Which only means that you're the you're the source of creation. If you look at early poet devotional verse, the source of creation is God. Then the Romantics is the source of creation is nature. Yeah. And when you get past World War II, eventually the poet himself or herself is the creator. The problem with that is it can be a sexist thing, and is a sexist thing, with the idea of the poet as the person who names the animals in the Garden of Eden. So when I tell my students who are black or my students who are women, or my black women poets, that you, in a sense, a transgressor or a rebel or you're breaking taboos, even today. I mean, I thought we had progressed to a certain place in public discourse, but we obviously haven't. In terms of some stuff about women, the misogyny and the racism in America became a lot more apparent this last election. It's, uh, It's really unfortunate. I mean, I, I don't think Hillary is an angel, but I, I think she's very ambitious, but you have to be ambitious if you want to be president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a female president, we've never had one before. And there are plenty of great female politicians. Mrs. Merkel's doing a really good job in Germany, mm-hmm. in my opinion. She was on Time Magazine's cover, what, a year ago, yeah. two years ago? Yeah. So it's, it's only people's uncomfortableness. My wife's sister said that she wouldn't want a woman to be president because of the time of her the time of month, and we both said, that's just nuts. Yeah. 
I mean, cheap if like guys don't have menopausal moments. Believe me, I have plenty of them. Yes. I've heard that the cycle that women go through monthly, men are supposed to go through on a daily basis. So, yeah, so surprise. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how how fa- where where that factoid comes it's, from. It's worse for us if you had beer or wine. Yeah, yeah. It, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I well, mean, I had a shrink that said women were more into context, which is important for being a writer and certainly big for being a politician. And he jokingly said men were about destination, and he held his finger out as if it were a phallic finger. <laughs> and it made sense. I yeah. mean, if you, my wife, when she goes shopping, she don't want me around because she's going to explore the whole store and the whole, <laughs> all the past and present of her wardrobe. I'm just looking for pants. Right. <laughs> and well, so there are, he was trying to say to me, there's differences in gender. You just have to be willing to go with both. I guess men are more expedient than women as a generality, but Hillary Clinton seems to me has a hawkish past compared to most Democrats because the world is such a dangerous place. I mean, you can't be a peace and love hippie Democrat anymore, unfortunately. Well, to some degree, kind of trying to tie it back into writing, it, it's not about nuance. You know, I mean, we're in the era of the politics by tweet. You know, and how right, right. how how much nuance can you convey in? And people don't want it. That's part of the mm-hmm. problem. And, and in many ways, You're right. as a writer, that's what you or, or an intellect. You know, you absolutely you, you want, have to understand. You want, the, you want the difficulty. That's what Pound said. Poems should be difficult, and I don't think he meant just elitist. He meant that they should be emotionally deep. And a lot of students just don't want to do it. And I'm saying, well, you have to pretend you want to do it if you want to stay in the class. <laughs> yes. So I tell them, pretend you want to publish poems, even <laughs> if you don't. Most people would love to publish a poem, but it's purely ego-driven. And they say, like, you know, they'll get a little bit older and say, forget it, i got to get a job. I'm like, well, a lot of the people in my generation did shitty jobs while they were waiting around to get a teaching job. Yeah. I've done any kind of job you can, I've driven a daycare bus, I've cleaned toilets, you name it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm always, you know, if you need to make the money and it doesn't kill your soul, then do the job. And Dean and I have done some really lousy jobs. Yeah. And then write about it. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes (laughs) I had bookkeeping jobs, which, you know, kept me in beer money and probably wasting some of my writing time. But, you know... Americans are mostly delayed adolescents. I tell my students they're young writers till they're 40, maybe 45. Mm-hmm. I have nephews and nieces that live at home in their 40s, so that's become a new norm if you're in the big city. I mean, Boston, New York, L.A. are super expensive. When I lived in Boston, I had a girlfriend and a friend, and we, we split the rent, and that's how you had to live. But after mm-hmm. a while, you, you get lazy or you get selfish and you want to buy a house. Yeah. But well, I know people in Boston that haven't got the salary to buy a house. Yeah. Uh, what What's the one bit of advice that you give your students, or hey, not even students, young writers looking to get published? Uh, first, I would tell them to overwrite and be willing to throw away half of it and add another half, um, which is the bad message I also give on Thursday, and I know it won't be well received, but I try to, <laughs> I try to charm my way through saying I'm on their side. I, I sometimes say I'm on the side of your character more than you are, I said to the students, because you're not willing to do the work to make it better poems, some of them. I don't say it that way, but that's what I'm doing. Right. Also, I have had students that went into social work, and I said that's a, that's a better calling than being a writer. 
but I'm too selfish, I guess. But riding in the long run is, is sort of like the spaceship that pulls the culture out, half like God. Like for people who don't like John Ashbery's super cerebral poetry, I said he's like Star Trek. He's way out there. <laughs> and, he, and he has made all kinds of other writers change and become larger, more impressive writers. Um, I tell people to read as much as you can, talk to your friends about what you like and don't like. Um, don't stick to the just the people who are getting rewarded by magazines. I mean, I have every book I've ever purchased in my life, which is really crazy since I've moved all over the United States. I am starting to give away books because I'm like, well, I'm going to die. I want this book to get lost. I'll give it to a student. But I still have oh, rooms, and my house got flooded, so there's a lot of books to move. Oh. I like books. I know that a lot of students like a clean house. A lot of my friends think it's a lot easier to do, use a Kindle, but poet, maybe fiction is getting to the point where you get fiction online, but but you can't get poetry yet. And they're so small. The poetry books are usually so small, so... <laughs> yeah, and they're cheaper than the science textbooks, for yeah. sure. The kids yeah. know that. Yeah. And I always get books that are kind of a little bit old, so I'll say, like, you can get that book for 50 cents on, at Amazon. <laughs> so would you encourage uh, writers who are looking to get published to um, read more? Like, I, I think that I have a problem. I'm, I like to write poetry a lot, and I really would like to get published, but I don't read enough poetry, and I find myself, like, getting lost when people are trying to refer to other poets and this and that. Do you think mm-hmm. that it's crucial that people who are trying to get published can know a lot about who has already been published? Yeah, I, do, I mean, it, I didn't believe it when I was in my MFA, but PhD forced me to go back. But I think you could survive by, you don't have to be a genius with Chaucer and Shakespeare and all that, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't hurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was forced to be pretty good with it, but I don't read them now because I, I'm I mostly teach twenty 20th century, twenty first century. Right. But some people are are not teaching writers who are still alive, and plus you don't you know in a creative writing class you're teaching lit and creative writing at the same time. Um, in the old days, I can remember classes where we had no textbooks, and I loved it as an undergraduate, but I think it's a bad way to go. Yeah. The teacher should pick a couple of books and say, these are my, you know, this is my 2017 heroes i like you to read. Um, and you don't have to, I say to them, if you don't understand the whole poem, so what? Mm-hmm. I always tell them I'm going to quiz, but they find out I'm lying on poetry because... <laughs> Because if you quiz them, the A student gets an F and the F student gets an F. Right, right. Now, fiction, you can you could talk about the reversal of a short story, and you can always bust the kids that didn't do their homework. Yeah. So I really am envious of that. But poetry, after a while, the kids are not stupid about that stuff. They go, he's not going to check. So I'm hoping that somebody who's conscientious and has a busy schedule will read part of the assignment, some of the professional work, and not just look at, the classmates work. Right. And yeah, the, and as you get older, and I'm talking about years and years, you, you read as much as you can, but read for pleasure. Don't read, don't read because somebody told you somebody was great. Okay. And if you don't like it, get a different book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always um, that. And some of that is like, uh, I was lucky enough to have really talented roommates and stuff in college, and they'd say, you got to give John, for instance, Ashford's probably the hardest poet to read in terms of what the poems are about. And he said, he would show me the easier ones, and he, eventually he got me to like him. So, like, Gerald Stern is much more accessible than John Ashbery, but I would say they both would be called New York school poets. Frank O'Hara is easy on Ashbery, but all three of those guys are New York school. 
I would put Ginsburg in the New York school, mm. even though he's called the beat. Yeah. He's he's an East Coast Jewish man that Gerald Stern has a poem, uh, an elegy for him in his uh, selected poems called Lilacs for Ginsburg, which is a riff on Whitman's Lilacs for Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And Eliot's essay is really interesting called Tradition and the Individual Talent. And I can tell my graduate students or students who are aspiring to be writers to look at it. And he says, you, sh- you graft yourself onto a tradition, so you, the more you know about poets of the past. If you're doing poets back to, to um, what do you call it, 1945, those poets are, are going back, and the poets before them are going back. So you're going to realize there's certain kinds of traditions. You know, the obvious ones are like sonnets and stuff like that, but there's other things like you know, how an ode is used. And I did an essay on the odes in college, and if you read O'Hara's odes, they really do come out of the odes by the Romantics, and it really is a test of of your godlike powers. Coleridge's dejection in ode is about how he's lost his mojo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he knows it's gone, and that's about the time he starts writing really thick philosophy based on the Germans. And so the good thing for students is he doesn't have very many poems, but those poems are great. There's only about 40 pages of poetry. Yeah, the ability, the ability to draw a line from, even in fiction, from you know Poe to Stephen King is, mm-hmm. is going to be helpful if you're a writer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you don't, and you also don't have to be read all of King and all of Poe. Yeah, um, you. I tell people that it's funny because there's some, no bookstores left. But I used to say a bookstore was like a candy store. Two things: you can meet smart people to date in a bookstore. <laughs> that was my first thing. <laughs> the second thing was that you could, you could. It's like being a kid. Well, even candy stores are gone, but. I remember a candy store where you go and say, I want this, this, and this, and you ate way more candy than you're supposed to. <laughs> I would. I, I started by going to Boston Public Library, and luckily there were some Wesleyan books there, and I discovered some writers that way that I had not heard of in undergraduate school, like Charles Wright and other people that got on Wesleyan. And so I started that way. Then as I had more money, I just bought the book. So now the kid, you don't have really have an excuse with Amazon because you can get anything. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt about true. that. That's I've true. got trends. I mean, I don't even... I hate sounding like I'm bragging, but I I read mostly non-American poetry, and it's in translation, which my colleagues will say, well, that's not the real poem. And I'm like, well, it is for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, You're the reader. It's Greek-like, or it's Italian-like, or it's Russian-like, or it's Japanese-like. I think it's always good for a human being to get outside your own culture, and if you can afford to travel, more power to you. I just can't afford to go every five minutes like my brother's traveling all over the place now that he's retired, but he worked for a firm that built skyscrapers, and they had a patent on the, the device that is the water for fires. And so he and he ran that company really well, and so he got into this family business, and he made a lot of money, and he's finally reaping the pleasures of retirement. He's always sending me pictures of outdoor readings, of like a Peruvian guy reading to a bunch of three <laughs> farmers. <laughs> I'm like, looks like America, me. <laughs> I've, it's, I've caught friends at real bookstores, famous writers. Padre Paul, one time in the bookstore in Memphis, I went there and no one showed up. And then the big guys get paid by the publishers to go around the country. Yeah. And he was, he, I said, well, he didn't want to read just for me, so I said, well, let's go get supper. Oh. Um, so if it happens to Padre Paul, who's a hot, hot number, who uh, my teacher Donald Bartholomew crowned in, in graduate school mm-hmm. as a fiction writer, you know that sometimes getting an audience is... Our poetry is really seen as apolitical. If you're a Russian 
squirrel balk and reading poetry. There's people there that want to kill you, and there are people there that want to hear you read. I'm not saying I want that. I say the American, a lot of times, writers get a, get ignored to death. They don't get shot, which is certainly better than dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite poet right now is, is a Slovenian, and I wonder if he knows the president-elect's wife, uh, but I don't think so. He's lived in New York. Well, he died uh, in, 19, in 2014, but he was like 70 years old. And I think he has 30 books in Slovenian, and I've got about 12 of his books that translated. Uh -huh. And it's interesting to see a writer who's not always worried about being chastised for being politically incorrect. Mm -hmm. He likes to, to break taboos. Uh, his name is Thomas Solomon. And when you read him, you realize he's, he has all the values we have, as most writers are are liberals. I mean, they just ha you have to be a liberal to be a writer, in my opinion, but I know some people would disagree with that. That's good advice, too, though, or at least something to take into consideration. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that bothers me about poetry these days is a little bit, and, I'm, and I see it on blurbs by people who I respect saying stuff is getting so careful and so measured, like somebody had a slide ruler out while they were writing the, the emotions of the poem. And that's what bothers me. Um, there's still great poets out there and still great poets coming up the line. And I, but you gotta, you haven't got time to read it all, so you, you just read as much as you can. I quote Isaac Babel. I just pulled out a book I hadn't seen in a while. And he was Jewish in Russia at a time they were killing Jews. And, and his grandmother said, you must know everything. And what that meant was that at the school with the other Russians, he had to get an A-plus to go on because he was Jewish. And I sort of took that as a, as a minority person myself, although most people would not think of an Irish-American as a minority. My parents would. <laughs> my grandparents would. Um, a working-class person anyway. A lot of times you'll go, move on in graduate school and you'll realize that your classmates have fairly rich parents. At least I discovered that. So I'm kind of proud to be a, a working-class slug who, <laughs> who did my variation of it in writing. Um, and certainly it makes for great writing. Well, Philip Levine is a guy who writes about people who, who do dirty jobs, like working in pickle <laughs> factories and stuff. But a lot, of, a lot of writers came from pretty affluent families, went to very fancy schools, and they're super talented. But what they write about is certainly not going to impress Joe the Plumber. Right. From the, <laughs> I'm quoting Joe the Plumber from the last election. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It was thank a pleasure you. having you. This has been uh, The Pub on WIPZ Radio, FM 101.5. I'd like to thank Richard Lyons again for talking with us, and Kelsey Hoff and Madison Moore for joining the conversation. A special thanks to Carl Roman for producing the show. You're welcome. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Twitter at straylightmag.com uh, and online where you can find more interviews along with some great fiction poetry, and art. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. 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 <laughs>